All right, so welcome back. This is our third class. We're holding in the middle of chapter two or towards the end of chapter two of the book of Esther, of Megillas Esther. And <clears throat> last we left off previously, um, we had the miraculous events. Uh, sorry, where can you find it? I'm going to try. You don't see it in the chat. Sometimes it doesn't go to certain people. I don't know what a person does to deserve to be special and not get it. Do it one more time. It should be in your email because I think you are on the list. So um, if you didn't, don't see it there. So uh, I just sent it in the chat again so you can check again. But otherwise, check your email from me today, earlier today. So the, <clears throat> the we, last week we left off where Esther was out of all the women in the kingdom, <clears throat> was chosen miraculously by Ahasuerus to be the new queen, despite all of hers and Mordechai's efforts to not be chosen. They were doing everything they could to not be chosen, to not be found. And despite that, they Esther was chosen. And it's possible, and we might reference it a little bit tonight, I think we mentioned it briefly last week, that once Mordechai saw this, he had a sense that there was something, something going on. He, he saw this as a sign from God. This is where Esther needs to be. This is how a person is supposed to respond to events that occur in their lives. You say, if, you know, this is where God wants me. And Mordechai understood that Esther had a role to play here. And it's actually kind of explicit in the Megillah in a later chapter that we'll, when we get there, we'll, we'll talk about it more, where he says, like, you know, Esther, it's perhaps it's for all this that you became queen so that you can be the one to, to intervene. So, but that's going to be sort of a, an idea that may, may um, apply, may affect some of what goes on in, uh, in, in the chapter that we'll be doing tonight. So we're going to be continuing chapter two and getting into a little bit of chapter three. So we pick up in chapter two, it's verse 18. And again, Esther has just been chosen to be queen in the previous verse. And now the Megillah tells us, and the king made a great banquet for all his princes or his officials and his servants, the feast of Esther. The Megillah says it was Mishte Esther, the feast of Esther. And he granted a release in the Hebrew, it's Hanacha, some kind of discount on taxes um, to the provinces. And he gave gifts according to the bounty of the king. He gave out gifts. Actually, this is as an aside, I, uh, I came across what I think is the, the, the first ever virtual dinner or kiddish to go, which people are doing now in shuls, because on this verse, Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabitz quotes from his brother. He said, the king made a great banquet for his princes and his servants. It was a much smaller banquet than the previous one. This one was only for a few special people, but everybody else, it says at the end, he gave gifts according to the bounty of the king. He explains he didn't want such a big crowd there, not because of COVID precautions, but because last time when he had had a big crowd, things had not worked out well for him. And, uh, and so this time he, he made it a little bit smaller, but he still sent gifts to all the, all the houses. The, the Manos Halevi, Rabbi Shlomo al explains that he sent food for people to enjoy in their homes 
with their families. So it was the first uh, first kiddish to go. Every, certain people were invited, but everybody else had a, had a take home meal. But anyways, this, it's very interesting to compare this verse to the next two verses that follow it. They seem to be strange and un unrelated. So we have, he makes a great banquet. We'll discuss it more momentarily. I just want to see verse 19. And when the maidens were gathered a second time, and Mordechai was sitting in the king's gate. What's this gathering of the maidens a second time? And why is that juxtaposed with, and Mordechai was sitting in the king's gate? And then verse 20, and Esther would not tell her lineage or her nationality as Mordechai had commanded her, for Esther kept Mordechai's orders as she had when she was raised by him. That actually appeared in an earlier verse, a very similar thing. It already told us that Esther didn't reveal her nationality, but here it repeats it. But just to look at these three verses, they just seem so disconnected. The king made a great banquet for all his princes, the Feast of Esther, and he gave tax breaks and gifts. And then it says, the Megans were gathered a second time. For what? Doesn't say. And Mordechai was singing the king's gate. Okay. And Esther would not tell her lineage. They just seem so disconnected. So that's something we'll have to explain. Well, let's just pose the question. What is this feast that he's making? What is this feast all about? He makes a great banquet for his princes, the Feast of Esther. So the most simple approach, obviously, is this is uh, like a wedding you know, celebration. He just, uh, he just married Esther, took her as his queen. So he's making a big party to celebrate. But the commentaries also explain that there was more to it than that. First of all, Ahasuerus wanted to appease the people. He had just made them absolutely crazy with his search for a queen, calling young women from all over the, his kingdom, forcing them to come and you know, go through just uh, shame and embarrassment to be tested by the king. And then some of them made concubines, some of them sent home. People were, could have easily been very upset with the king, and that's not how he wanted it. So he wanted to appease them. So he made a banquet for some of the leaders. He invited them to the wedding. You know, He, uh, he gave tax breaks. He sent gifts to, to people. So this was a way of winning the people back a little bit at this moment where his, uh, his, his support was probably waning. Um, Additionally, by calling it the Feast of Esther and sort of doing this in Esther's name, he would get draw goodwill for Esther as well, because people may not have looked at her so, so positively after, you know, all these people went and she was the one chosen. There would be jealousy or at least just, you know, again, people being sent home to shame and, to, you know, to somebody who had gone, a woman, or a girl who had gone through that experience was probably not likely to be able to marry after that. So it was, uh, it was people's, people were not uh, necessarily looking so fondly on Esther. So he wanted to prop her up to, uh, to make her liked. So he did all these things in her name. However, the Talmud, the Gemara tells us a different idea of what it was all about. So if you look on the source sheet under verse 20, I have the Talmud Megillah 13a. It says the king made a great feast. The Gemara, the Talmud explains this was part of an attempt to have Esther reveal her true identity. 
Again, Esther was withholding her identity. Um, and Achashverosh wanted to know who she was exactly. So he made a great feast in her honor. He hoped that, you know, he would win her over. He would make a great feast in her honor, says the Talmud, but she did not reveal her identity. So he lowered taxes in her honor. He did something great in her honor, again, in her name, again, to try to win over support or win her over, that he's doing all these things, making her liked by all the people. Maybe now she'll, she'll own up and, and tell him who she is exactly. She still didn't reveal it. And then he sent gifts to people in her name. You know, this is on behalf of Esther. Again, he's trying to do all these things on her behalf for her and says the Talmud, but she still did not reveal it to him. The Talmud is connecting the verse 18 and verse 20, right? Because what's the connection? He made the great banquet and Esther will not tell her lineage. So it's explaining that he was attempting to get her to tell him who she was, where she came from. And finally, the Talmud says, what's the story with gathering the maidens a second time? So some commentaries, like the Malbim, explain that it just means he gathered them up to send them home. He gathered them up to send them home. And that was because he felt, he thought that perhaps maybe the reason why Esther won't reveal where she comes from is because it's going to be embarrassing to her and shameful. Maybe she comes from some family that would be shameful for her to admit to. And she's afraid that she's going to, if, if Ahasuerus finds out who she is, he's going to reject her. So Ahasuerus thought maybe she's afraid of being rejected. So I'm going to show her that, no, I mean to keep her. So he sent home all the other maidens. That, you know, I'm, not, I'm not looking anymore. I'm done. You know, I found my, I found my wife. And Mordechai was sitting in the gates. He, had, he, he knew that she had come from Mordechai's house. And he, even though he knew Mordechai was Jewish, we'll talk a moment why that wasn't obvious to him necessarily that Esther was also, but he, he took, he knew the connection. He knew that Mordechai had raised her. So he did her a favor, you know, look, you know, I mean, I mean business here. I mean to keep you, I'm happy with you. I'm even giving Mordechai a nice position within the King's gate. And, uh, and still, and still Esther would not reveal who she was. The Talmud, though, has a different understanding of what this was that he gathered the virgins a second time. He gathered the maidens a second time. It says, still in that same paragraph there, and when the virgins were gathered together the second time, and Mordechai sat in the king's gate, it says he took advice from Mordechai. If he knew that he, Mordechai knew her. So he said, what, what am I going to do to get her to reveal her identity? So Mordechai said, as a rule, a woman is jealous only of the thigh of another woman. In other words, he wanted to make her jealous. If you make her jealous, then she'll, she'll reveal her identity. So gather, gather the maidens again, you know, make it the opposite of the Malbim of what I just said. The, the Talmud saying, you know, make her jealous, make her think that you're going to take another wife or even have relations with other women. And, uh, and then she'll, out of jealousy, she'll want to be in your presence. And, uh, and that way she'll reveal her identity. That was Mordechai's advice. Now, I think that Mordechai was probably purposely, you know, he, he didn't want Esther to have to be with, with Ahasuerus. So, you know, he's telling Ahasuerus, oh, look, you know, in the meanwhile, look for, look for another woman to be with. And that way you'll leave Esther alone, at least for now. 
So, but in any event, that was, that's the connection according to the Talmud between these verses. They were gathered a second time in order to make Esther jealous in order that she would reveal her identity. Did she reveal her identity? It says no, in verse 20, she still will not reveal her lineage or her nationality. Um, now, how could it be that Ahasuerus could not figure out, cannot find out where she came from? I mean, he knows he's, she's from Mordechai's house, first of all. So, so how can he not figure this out? So just because she came from Mordechai's house doesn't mean that she's Jewish. She could have taken in a non-Jewish girl who was orphaned and, and raised her. So that's, that's not necessarily going to give it away. Now, we already mentioned last week this idea somewhat, but I think I saw it maybe said a little bit, um, a little bit differently. And the way that, that, that it's quoted, it's actually quoted by the Manos Alevi again, Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz. He's quoting it in the name of Rashi, but in our Rashi, it doesn't appear. We don't have this in our version of Rashi, but apparently he did. And the way that Rashi poses the question is, how could he not find out that she was Jewish? Weren't there other Jews around who would tell him, who would inform on her? And, and you know, they knew her. She, she was from the community. Didn't they know? So he says, very fascinating. You know, we mentioned last week that Esther found favor in everybody's eyes, the verse says. And the Talmud says it means that she looked, every nation thought she looked like them. Everybody said, oh, she's one of us. So, so, so this Rashi explains that, yeah, there were Jews who were saying she's one of us, but you know what? There were also Persians saying she was one of us. And there were lots of different nations saying she's one of us. Everybody wanted to take credit for her because everybody thought that she was one of them. She looked like everybody felt this connection to her. The word chain actually often is, chain is like, is like um, grace. It means people feel connected to that person. That's what it means usually. And, uh, and that's what Esther had. Everybody thought that she was one of them. So even if there were people saying, no, no, she's Jewish, she's Jewish. Yeah, but there were, there were Persians saying she's Persian and Babylonians saying she's Babylonian. Everybody was trying to claim her for themselves. So it didn't make a difference that there were Jews saying that she was Jewish. That's what uh, Rashi, the Manos Alevi quotes Rashi. The Manos Alevi actually then says, but I don't think so. He says, no, Rashi is being suspicious of Jews in this way. He says, no, it's the opposite. Nobody reported on her. Nobody informed on her. Everybody zipped their mouths. If Mordechai was a leader, he said, we're not going to reveal who she is. Everybody listened. And he says, this was a great merit for the Jewish people that they did not reveal her identity. They did not go against Mordechai's wishes. And uh, that was going to come back to be important later on. Now, one other important point. Why didn't Ahasuerus you know, squeezing out of her. He's giving gifts, you know, in her name. He's, he's making a party in her name. He's, he's trying to appease her to try to find out her identity. Why doesn't he just say, okay, Esther, seriously, like, no, it's, it's now or never, you know? So how is he letting her hold back? But I think the, the, the reason is because he, he had a bad experience with his last wife trying to force her to do something. He doesn't want a repeat of what happened with Vashti. He doesn't want to have to start this process all over again, right? So he's has a, he has to take a different approach. 
and his approach here, and, and he loves Esther. He is instantly drawn to her, and he doesn't want to lose this one. I mean, I think he loved Vashti as well, and that's why he regretted what he did. But he, uh, he, 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 he doesn't want to force her into this, and, and uh, that's why he maybe takes an easier route. It doesn't end up working. He tries to appease her, tries to convince her. She doesn't, she doesn't give in. Okay, so pick up verse 21. So now it says, in those days when Mordechai was sitting in the king's gate, Big Sung and Seresh, two of the king's chamberlains of the guards of the threshold became angry and sought to lay a hand on King Ahasuerus. So these two guards, the threshold, the door, they guard Ahasuerus's chambers or something. They, uh, they were angry about something. It doesn't say what. And, and they sought to lay a hand on King Ahasuerus, meaning they wanted to kill him, to assassinate the king. 22, and the matter became known to Mordechai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in Mordechai's name. We'll skip that targum that's on the source sheet. If you're following there, go to 23. And the matter was investigated and found to be so. And they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the diary that was read before the king. So they, uh, they investigate. It, it turns out that, that the, the, the tip was, was, was true. They're able to discover that there was an assassination plot, and they are both, both Big Sang and Seresh are hanged on the gallows. So let's, I guess, start with reading how the Talmud, how the Gemara interprets these events. And the Gemara there says as follows, Megillah 13b. In those days, while Mordechai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Sang and Seresh, of those that guarded the doors, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Rabbi Chia bar Abba said that Rabbi Yochanan said, the Holy One, blessed be he, God caused a master to become angry with his servants in order to fulfill the will of a righteous man. And who is this? It is Joseph. So it contrasts this story with what happens to Joseph, to Yosef, where Yosef ends up in prison with, the, with Pharaoh's butler and baker. And it's through the, the butler that Yosef is ultimately able to be freed from prison and go on to become the viceroy of Egypt. How does that all start? Because Pharaoh got angry at his butler and put him in prison. So God, God engineered the events that a master, the king, Pharaoh, got angry at his, at his servant, the butler, in order to assist Yosef in his, in his mission there. And we contrast that similarly over here. It was the opposite. God caused the servant to get angry with the master. He caused the guards to get angry with King Ahasuerus and in order to perform a miracle for another righteous man, for Mordechai. Who is he? It is Mordechai. As with regard to the plot to kill the king, it is written, and the matter became known to Mordechai. So Mordechai found out about this plot to kill the king. How did he find out? So the Talmud continues. Rabbi Yochanan said, Big Sung and Sherish were two Tarsians. That was their nation, and they would talk with one another in the Tarsian language. So they thought nobody understood them. They said, from the day that Esther arrived, we have not slept. As Ahasuerus has been with Esther all night, and he has been busying us with his demands, 
he was always asking for water and things, and he, they, they, they had no breaks on their duty, serving him, servicing him. They said, come, let us cast poison in the goblet from which he drinks, that he will die. But they did not know that Mordechai was one of those who sat on the Sanhedrin, which convened in the Lishka Sargazis, chamber of human stonefying. He's part of the, the high court. He, was, he had been part of the high court of the Jewish people, and that he knew 70 languages. So Mordechai knew, which was one of the requirements to be part of the Sanhedrin, the high court. So Mordechai knew their language, Tarsian. So he heard them plotting and he understood. So while planning their plot, one of them said to the other, but my post and your post are not identical. How then can one of us leave our position to succeed in our plot to poison the king? So there was some complication in terms of the, the times or, or, or where they were posted. So the other one said to him, I will guard both my post and your post. And this is, as it is written, with regard to the king's verifying Mordechai's revelation of the plan to kill the king. And when inquiry was made of the matter, it was found to be so. So uh, we had a different translation than over here, but uh, the matter was investigating, was found to be so. How do they find out that it was true? Because the guards were not on their posts. They, had, uh, they, they were not where they were supposed to be, or one of them wasn't was where he was supposed to be. It was discovered that they were not both found at their posts, and that's how they were busted. So, uh, so the Talmud interprets what happened over here was Mordechai overheard them speaking in this foreign language, Tarsin, he understood it. They didn't realize that he understood it. And uh, he was able to report it. And they, they, he told Esther, Esther told the king, they investigated and indeed it was true. And Big Sun and Saresh were hung. Now, the, but the, the opening line here is very important. The, the sages here are realize, they're, they're recognizing this didn't just happen, right? This is the Megillah, this didn't just happen. How, does, how do they say it? Um, the Holy One, blessed be he, caused a master to become angry with his servants. And in this case, servants become angry with their master. Things were going great, right? The king was doing all these good things for the people. <clears throat> he was making parties. He was <clears throat> giving discounts on taxes. He was giving out gifts. Why is anybody getting angry with this king? So the answer is <clears throat> to do the service of, uh, of, of Mordechai. In order that more, the reason why they got angry was with a little help from God in order that Mordechai could be in position to, to, um, to, save, the, to, to, to save the king. So that's what, that's what the sages here are, are, are zeroing in on, that very important ability to recognize that this is the hand of God at work. Now, the, the Talmud gave a certain reason why they got angry. Again, the verse just says they got angry. The Talmud says they got angry because because they were being overworked. Achashverosh kept asking for drinks and things, and they were, they were upset about that. Um, the, Midrash, the Midrash has a different explanation. The Midrash says in the Yalkut Shimoni that Esther actually had said to Achashverosh, she said, you know, you need, you need, a, 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 you need, there's different versions of how the Midrash goes, but you need an assistant who's very righteous. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, Bab, of, of Babylon, Babylonia, of Babel, he had had 
this guy, Daniel, Daniel, you know, this righteous man servicing him. You need someone to service him, to service you as well. So you know, that sounds like a good idea. I should have someone righteous very near me. Who do you, you have any ideas? So she's like, yeah, actually, I know this guy. His name is Mordechai. So, uh, so that's why it says in the verse, um, in those days, while Mordechai sat in the king's gate, he had just gotten elevated to this position where he sat in the king's gate. Now, according to the Midrash, when he sat in the king's gate because he, got, he took the position of Big Sun and Saresh. So they weren't just mad at Achashverosh, they're actually mad at Mordechai also, because he had taken their position. He was now responsible for the king in some way, guarding him, maybe as an advisor now somewhat. They were mad at both Achashverosh and Mordechai. Unfortunately, um, well, and what they hoped for was they would kill Achashverosh, who would get blamed? Mordechai, he's the new, you know, the new guard. He's the new guy on, uh, the, the new guy around. That was their plan. Obviously, it didn't work out. Um, uh, Mordechai got wind of it, and they were, they were found to, to, to be plotting. Um, but, but we have that, that, uh, that Mordechai got this new position, and, and it would have been very embarrassing for him if something had befallen Achashverosh, but he was able to intervene. Now, that actually helps us maybe to understand a little bit an important question, which is, why did Mordechai save Achashverosh's life? You know, especially in light of what the Talmud teaches us. I think I actually put it on the sheet. Um, yeah, look at, at source number three. It's on page two. The Talmud Megillah 14a. So it, when, when Haman later is going to come and, and ask for permission to wipe out the Jews. So the Talmud says that the actions of Ahasuerus and Haman can be understood with the parable. So what may they be compared to two individuals, one of whom has a mound in the middle of his field and the other of whom had a ditch in the middle of his field. One guy has a big pile of dirt. He wants to get rid of it. One guy has a big hole in the ground. He wants to fill it up. So the owner of the ditch sees the mound of dirt and he goes over to the owner of the dirt and he says, will you give me this mound of dirt so I can fill my ditch? And he says, I'm even willing, I'll buy it from you. Well, the owner of the mound says, well, um, I need a ditch. So you don't even have to pay for me. I, I need somewhere to put my dirt. So what this refers to, the Talmud explains, is that Ahasuerus wanted to get rid of the Jews, the dirt. So when Haman comes and he offers to pay to, to wipe them out, so Ahasuerus says, no, you, need, you don't need to pay me for that. I'll, you, can, you can, no problem. You could do it. You could do it without paying me. I'm happy to get rid of my dirt. That's the, that's the parable that, that, that's offered. So, so the, or analogy. So Ahasuerus was no fan of the Jewish people. In fact, the, the temple, which had been destroyed about 70 years previously, construction had begun on, a second, on the second temple already. And under, under the rule of Koresh, one of the previous kings, who put a stop to it? Ahasuerush. Ahasuerush put a stop to the building of the temple. It's going to resume shortly after the story of Purim. 
when his son, Daryavish, is the next king. But Barachashverosh put a stop to building the temple. So this is no friend of the Jews. So why is Mordechai saving his life? Furthermore, doesn't he want to get Esther out of this predicament? Like we learned, Mordechai and Esther were not, did not want her to be the queen. They did not want her to be married to this Gentile king. So, so why, uh, why is he getting involved? Why doesn't he just, he hears a plot, he should be like, oh, that sounds, that sounds great, you know? <laughs> let's, let this, let's let this go. So, uh, so the Midrash poses this question. If you go back up on page two to source number two, the Midrash says, why did Mordechai tell her to tell the king? Why did he report what was going on? In other words, why did he save the king's life? So the Midrash says four things, and they're not so easy to understand, but we can, we're going to explain them. First of all, it said, Mordechai said, it is better that he live, for he has given me permission to rebuild the temple. Now, that sounds exactly opposite of what I just said. I just said that Ahasuerus stopped the rebuilding of the temple. The Midrash says that he's, he had given permission to rebuild the temple. Alternatively, it says another reason. Uh, Mordechai said he is, he is better to be king because he knows me. Were something to befall the Jewish people, I could tell him and he would act on it. So Mordechai is saying, I, I have a connection to this guy. He knows me. And if need be, I can intervene. Alternatively, a third answer. So nobody would say, as long as he was married to a Gentile, to Vashti, he was protected. Now that he is married a Jewess, he has died. You know, as soon as he, he marries a Esther, then he meets his end. And furthermore, alternatively, a last answer, nobody would say, as long as he had Gentiles guarding him, he was protected. Now that Mordechai is guarding him, he is killed. He gets killed. So, so those are the four answers that the Talmud gives. So just to break it down a little bit and try to explain what these four answers are and why they're even true. So the first answer was that Mordechai said, it's better that he live, for he has given me permission to rebuild the temple. How do we understand that? Didn't I say that Ahasuerus was the one who stopped the Jewish people from rebuilding the temple? He put a stop to, their, to, to, to what they were already involved in. So, so again, working with the Manos HaLevi, Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, he explains that it's true he put a stop to it, but, but who was it? Why did he put a stop to it? because Vashti told him to. Vashti was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and it's backed up by different midrash and different sources that it was actually Vashti that had convinced Ahasuerus to stop, to, to, to stop the Jews from rebuilding the temple. So, so now Mordechai says, well, that, he only did that because of Vashti, but now he would be willing to continue. And Mordechai, um, was well connected, and he 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 knew about Achashverosh, and he felt that he would eventually allow them to rebuild it. Now, the way it says it is he has given me permission. It could be understood he's he, earlier until before Vashti told him to to stop them. He had allowed it. He had still allowed it until she convinced him to put a stop to it. Um, secondly, it says he's better because he knows me. He has a connection to me. But it's more than that, says, says the Manos Alevi. 
Achashverosh recognized that the Jewish people were a great nation. He was scared of them, in fact. When Haman comes to Achashverosh and says, I want to wipe out this, you know, wipe out these people. So according to the Midrash, Achashverosh responded, you know, it's been tried before. We, their God protects them. So, so Achashverosh knew who the Jewish people were. And, and Mordechai felt that because of that, he had a certain respect for the Jewish people. It was like a, maybe a love-hate relationship, but he had a certain respect for them. And Mordechai felt that just as he might eventually, he might be able to be convinced to act aggressively against the Jewish people, Mordechai could also convince him to act um, as a protector of the Jewish people. Furthermore, and the last two kind of tie together, Mordechai was concerned about Chilul Hashem, about the desecration of God's name. If Mordechai, if Achashverosh would be allowed to be killed, number one, assuming, it assumes that Esther's identity would eventually be discovered, because right now people don't know that she's Jewish, but if that would be found out, and people would say, then people would say, look what happens, the king marries uh, a Jewess, and he meets his end, that would cause Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name, and perhaps even more so, now that, that Mordechai is a guard of King Ahasuerus, is that was according to that Midrash that Esther had him appointed in the place of these big son and Sarish, and he was standing by the door. So he would be the one that would be blamed for this. And that would cause also great, uh, great desecration of God's name. For all those reasons, Mordechai intervened and decided to help save the king's life and not just let things be and let the guards, let Big Singh and Saresh um, assassinate him. So how does he report this? How does he report it to the king? So if we go back to the verses, back on page one, um, verse 22, it says, and the Magra became known to Mordechai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told it to the king in Mordechai's name. Why did he go through Esther? Why didn't he just report it himself? He was connected. So, so the reason that many suggest is because he wanted Esther to look good in Ahasuerus' eyes. He wanted, I mean, she already did, but even more so now, he wanted, her, her, he wanted Ahasuerus to, to respect, to uh, appreciate, to feel indebted to Esther. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Mordechai sensed that Esther was there for a reason and at some point would perhaps need to intervene to protect the Jewish people. So he figured if Esther would save the king's life, then later, when necessary, the king would step in to save Esther's life. So he tells Esther to, you be the one to report it. Now, what does Esther do? So it says in verse 23, uh, sorry, still in verse 22, and Esther told it to the king in Mordechai's name. So she, she will also want Mordechai to win favor in the king's eyes. So she ended up telling it in the Mordechai's name, and it was a win-win. You know, both of them gained favor in the king's eyes as a result. And most importantly, it was written, it was investigated, and it was written in the diary that was read before the king. And that's going to be very important because Mordechai 
does not get rewarded at this time. And only later, when Hamang is on the rise and seems to be just everything's going for him and the Jewish people, everything is falling apart, that's when they're going to realize they never rewarded Mordechai and that's when everything's going to turn around. So it's very important that it was told to the king in Mordechai's name and that it was written down, but Mordechai didn't actually receive any, any reward yet. Now, if you look on the source sheet at verse 22, so I put the Targum there. Targum means translation. So there, is a, there are different Aramaic translations of all of our, you know, all of Tanakh. So for on Chumash, on the Chumash, on the five books of Moses, Targum Onkelos, ancient translation, um, probably, I think that's from about 1500 years ago or so. This Targum, this translation is not quite as ancient as, as Onkelos, but it uh, dates back to, I think between the fifth or eighth century, sometime between then. I don't know if we know exactly who wrote it, but uh, it's a explanation of the Megillah. And there's a couple, there's two different Targums on the Megillah. So this comes from what we could, they call Targum number one, the first Aramaic translation. And there on this verse, it says, it seems to translate the word slightly differently than I've been saying it. So if you look on our, in verse 22, on our translation, it says, Esther told it to the king in Mordechai's name. The Targum translation is, Esther told it to the king, and it was written in the name of Mordechai. The difference is, that she didn't tell it to the king in the name of Mordechai. She told it to the king as if it was her own information, but she made sure that it was written in the name of Mordechai. And why would she do that? Why would she do that? So, so Mano Salevi says, you know, it's very strange. Why wasn't Mordechai rewarded right away? Somebody, he saved the king's life. He saved the king's life. Why wasn't he rewarded right away? So the answer could be because that was God's plan that he only be rewarded later. But, uh, but the Targum here is, is saying that he wasn't rewarded right away because actually Ahasuerus was never told that it was Mordechai, at this point at least, was not told that it was Mordechai that had saved him. Esther reported it to Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus thought that Esther had saved him. Now, there's not much that, she could, that he could do for Esther, you know, as a reward. Esther is his queen. She's already getting plenty from him. So he didn't reward her, but that's, I guess, the side point, really. Mordechai, he, he doesn't even know that Mordechai saved him. But Esther made sure that that was written in. And again, she's planning for later. She realizes that we don't need anything from the king right now, but there might come a time that we're going to need something. So she, she deliberately arranges it that Mordechai is not rewarded now. And this fits into the verses when we get to them. I probably should have put them here on the source sheet, but when we get to them, it, uh, when, when they're reading this book of Chronicles to Ahasuerus later in the Megillah, it says like, and he found that it was written that Mordechai had saved him. Like, as if like, it was like, you know, when we say you found something, it's something that you didn't know was there, right? So, so this, is, this was like a, a higgin, you know, this was something you never realized, you never known. So, so that fits into this approach that actually Ahasuerus never knew that Mordechai had saved him. Esther arranged that it should be written in, in, his, in, in his name 
and that Ahasuerus should be able to find out later. Now, all these events together, we look at it, Mordechai saving the king. Again, we have to, we're focusing, we're trying to focus on the little, the little miracles, the little things. You know, it's a big thing that, uh, that, that Mordechai saved the king. That's a big deal in the story when we, when we want to string all the events together and point to how miraculous this, this series of events was. Absolutely. But also when we zero in on the little details, so we see even more so how everything was so miraculous. So the Malbim points out that we have a series of miraculous events occurring that allow for Mordechai to save the king. Um, so it's just, he has a whole list, but some of them are, as we mentioned, the very fact that they, these guards decided to kill the king. What did they even have to gain? What were they looking for? It doesn't even make so much sense that, that they, they were angry, but but why do they have to gain by assassinating the king? But that was, that was part of the miracle. Um, furthermore, the fact that Mordechai was able to discover this and that he was able to tell it to Esther and Esther was able to tell it in his name or have it written in his name, whichever approach you go with. But, but all of these things were essential, are going to come back to be essential later on. The fact that it was discovered, they were able to discover and, and prove that this was a real plot. If not, it would bring a great embarrassment. So we have the, the according to the Talmud, they found, uh, they found that the guards were in the wrong places. Others say they found the poison in the cup, different ways that they might have discovered it, but it was discovered and that's not so simple either. And lastly, um, the way that it was written down, um, and that it, or that it wasn't rewarded immediately, that this was depositing in the bank for later, had, had Mordechai been rewarded right now, then uh, a few years later, when it comes time and Haman's again flying high and the Jewish people are in the ditches and uh, facing annihilation, that's, that's when they need it. We don't need it right now, like we said. So the fact that, this, that there was this delay in, uh, and, and Mordechai was not immediately rewarded, um, is also part of the miracle. <clears throat> okay, so with that, we are ready to go on to chapter three. So if you turn to the second side, verse one tells us, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamdasa, the Agagite, and advanced him and placed his seat above all the princes who were with him. So Haman, is elevated to a position of power, prime minister, second in command. Um, the, the, the verse refers to him as an Agagite, which we understand to mean he was a descendant of King Agag from the tribe, from the nation of Amalek, um, who are always seeking to annihilate the Jews. We'll hopefully discuss that a little more in a later class. But the Talmud zeroes in on this, these words after these events, after what events? There, we seem to try to connect Haman's being elevated to what had happened previously. So the Talmud tells us after these events, um, after what? Rava said, only after the Holy One, blessed be he, created a remedy for the blow. As Reish Lakir says, the Holy One, blessed be he, does not strike at the Jewish people unless he has already created a remedy for them beforehand. In Hebrew, we call it refuah kodem lamaka. 
the cure, the remedy is created before God strikes. So the Jewish people had, were deserving of this fate at that time. Um, again, could be because of the feast. Another idea which the Talmud discusses is because they had been involved in idolatry previously. Whatever it was that they were deserving. So, but God creates the remedy. He sets everything up for them to be saved if they will be deserving of that. So we have, like we said, Vashti is deposed. Esther takes her place. Mordechai saves the king's life. Everything is in position for them to be saved later. That's Achar Hadavarimele. After these events, after God has arranged for, for their salvation, now comes the blow. Now comes Haman. Now comes the decree against the Jewish people. And, uh, and the idea of Rifua Kodem Lamaka, the idea of the remedy before the, before the blow, is that this shows that the blow, so to speak, the, the, the suffering that the Jewish people are going to experience here and any time is that there's a purpose to it and there's a reason for it. We don't always understand it, but there's a reason for it. And to, to prove it, so to speak, God prepares the medicine already before. It's just like a person goes into surgery. A person goes into surgery they, the doctors have, you know, all the bandaging and all the, whatever, the everything to, to, to put the person back together after. So, so similarly, when, when, when the Jewish people have to experience something like this, so it's, it's surgery. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a message of, to the Jewish people that they need to step it up, improve, change their ways. And that's how the Jewish people responded. They responded with repentance and prayer, and maybe some other things that, that they changed in their behavior. And the God had set everything up on the side, you know, all the tool, all the, all the um, medical tools were there to all the bandages, all the, all the creams, whatever was needed, the stitching was already all set up before the, 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 the blow occurs. Um, and I think that th what the Talmud really is telling us, this is always the case. You know, there's obviously been plenty of suffering throughout our history. There was always the remedy waiting on the side. Sometimes we were deserving of it. Sometimes we weren't. But the Talmud is telling us that's how God operates. He prepares the remedy on the side before the blow, because the blow is really meant as a, as a, uh, consequence but a, a a a experience by which we are supposed to grow and and improve our ways so that's according to the talmud after these events after god had prepared everything on a more maybe simple practical level the malbim explains that what is this after these events after after ahashverosh had forgotten how his life had been saved. So Esther had helped save his life and, uh, and he, wanted to, he wanted to reward her. So he, how did he reward her? Well, remember, how did Esther become the queen? Well, the reason why she became queen was on the advice of a certain fellow named Memuchan, 
Memuchan was um, the one who advised Achashverosh to get rid of Vashti. And, and in the end, it worked out great. You know, now Achashverosh is finally happy again. He has Esther. So, so he, appreciates, he appreciates having Esther. He wants to reward Esther. He doesn't know really how to do it. So what can he do for her? She's the queen. He'll elevate the person who helped get her to that position. And that was Memuchan, which our sages say Memuchan is, was the same person as Haman. As we explained in the first class, Memuchan may have been his title at that time, but he was Haman. And this was a way of actually rewarding Esther. You know, I'll elevate the person that helped you get to this position. That will be your reward. Furthermore, the Malbim quotes a fascinating novel idea from, I believe it comes from the Abarbanel, that, uh, that the Abarbanel understood that the reason why Haman was elevated at this point was actually because Ahasuerus had forgotten who had saved his life and Haman had taken credit for it. Haman took credit for saving Ahasuerus's life. He managed to convince Ahasuerus that it was him. Yeah, yeah, it was me. And uh, so after some time, when Ahasuerus kind of forgot exactly who had, who had been, Haman convinced him that it was him. And uh, he was the one who, who revealed the information of the assassination attempt. And as a result, Haman is given, is given a position of power. And it's a, it's a, it's a climb. It starts off, um, as the verse says, how does it read? It says, he advanced him. He placed his seat above, he promoted him and he advanced him and he placed his seat. So it's describing sort of this, uh, this process of Haman being elevated step after step. And, uh, and finally, to be the highest, you know, and his, as it says, he placed his seat above all the princes who were with him. He, had, he was in the highest position in Ahasuerus's government. And verse two, and all the king's servants who were in the king's gate would kneel and prostrate themselves before Haman, for so had the king commanded concerning him, but Mordechai would neither kneel nor prostrate himself. So everybody bows to Haman, but, but Mordechai will not bow to Haman. And the king's servants who were in the king's gate said to Mordechai, why do you disobey the king's orders? Why will you not bow to Haman? So it's a good question. Why wouldn't Mordechai bow to Haman? So one idea, I think it's probably the most famous idea, although it's actually not the most common approach in the commentary, is that Haman had some kind of idol around his neck, a necklace or something, or something on his chest. And that's why Mordechai wouldn't bow, because he didn't want to bow to an idol. Most commentators actually understand that he wouldn't bow because Haman himself was being treated like an idol, like a god. Talmud says this, the Midrash says this, in many commentaries. And the way they understand it is that, um, again, because Haman had given this tremendous um, advice to the king, which had worked out so well, and he ended up with this wonderful queen. So, so he was considered this like tremendously wise person. And such a person in those days would be attributed godlike uh, powers, you know, somebody with such wisdom is someone to be worshipped. And, uh, and that was the intent was that they 
was that Ahasuerus felt that this was someone that people should, there's an intermediary of God, of the gods maybe, you know, but somebody that should be, that should be worshipped. And that's why they were to bow to him, and that's why Mordechai refused to bow. But another idea, which was very fascinating to me, was that if you read carefully, the verse says that all the king's servants would kneel, for so had the king commanded concerning him. The king's servants, in Hebrew, avdei hamelech, the servants of the king, those are the ones who had to bow. Well, Mordechai held, Mordechai was of the opinion that the Jewish people were not servants of the king. They were not slaves of the king. All the other people in the kingdom may have considered themselves slaves of the king. Mordechai said, we are not avdei hamelech. We are not the servants of Ahasuerus. And therefore, I am not required to bow to Haman. I am not part of this decree. The decree, the law was that servants, slaves of Ahasuerus had to bow. The Jewish people are not, are not slaves to the king. And the commentary, Yosef Lekach, actually, he says that, that until this day, he writes, probably in the, in the 17th, 18th century, I think he's writing, he says, until this day, the kings in the, in the West and in the Islamic countries, they have a law that a Jew cannot be a slave. A Jew cannot be a slave. And uh, I didn't verify this, but that's what he writes. He lived somewhere over there. And uh, he said, because they, they believe that since the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt and God released them from Egypt, from, from Egyptian bondage, they cannot be slaves anymore. That was apparently the, uh, the, what many held in the, in the Middle East. And uh, even until the days that the Yosef Lekach is writing. And, uh, and this is what, what Mordechai was standing up for. He wasn't just standing up because he didn't want to bow. He held it that this was a bad idea for us to give into this. If we bow, we are admitting, we are saying that we are slaves to this king. It's in the, it's in the interest of the Jewish people to maintain our um, freedom, to retain our autonomy. And that is why he refused to bow. Now, the verse continues, it says, it came to pass when they said this to him daily, meaning the people were telling Mordechai, you got to do this, you got to bow. He did not heed them. They told this to Haman to see whether Mordechai's words would stand up. Will Mordechai hold to this? Will he keep doing this? For he had told them that he was a Jew. Um, Mordechai had explained the reason why he won't do this is because he's a Jew. Either that can mean he won't bow down to an idol because he's a Jew whether that means a physical idol on his chest, Haman being an idol, or he won't bow down because he's a Jew and I'm not a slave to the king, so I won't bow down. Either way, it says, when Haman saw that Mordechai would neither kneel nor prostrate himself before him, Haman became full of wrath. Haman finally looks. He, up till now, he was too arrogant to look. He would walk around arrogantly, but now he was told that Mordechai isn't bowing. So he looks and indeed he sees it and he's very angry. Verse six, but it seemed contemptible to lay for, to him to lay hands on Mordechai alone, for they had told him Mordechai's nationality, and Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout Achashverosh's entire kingdom, Mordechai's people. So I don't know if Mordechai could have anticipated this, but Mordechai, Haman is not, does not just get angry at Mordechai. He decides, I am, it's not, it's, 
it's contemptible. It was disgraceful to only lay hands on Mordechai. He sought to destroy all the Jews. That could be because he understood that this was coming from Mordechai's religion. It wasn't just about Mordechai. It was about Mordechai's religion. Mordechai was a leader. Um, but also, it could just be that it was disgraceful for him, meaning he didn't want to admit that he was doing, would be doing this just because Mordechai wouldn't bow. That doesn't sound good, you know? <coughs> so, so if he would only lay hands on Mordechai, it make it seem like he's, he's such a, you know, he's, he, t- he gets insulted so easily. No, no, this isn't about Mordechai. This is about the Jews. I want to get rid of the Jews. We'll learn next week a little bit more about what he said, how he went about that. I just want to close with the verse seven, um, which is where he's going to, he draws the lots to decide when he wants to destroy the Jewish people. So it says, verse seven, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, um, one cast the poor, meaning Haman, he did a poor, that's where the word Purim comes from. A poor, it says, is a lot. He drew lots before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. When did it fall out on? It fell out on in the 12th month and the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the 13th of Adar, which is actually the day before we celebrate Purim. We celebrate Purim on the 14th of Adar. We'll get to that eventually. But the day that Haman determined from his lots for the annihilation of the Jewish people was the 13th of Adar. When did he draw the lots? What day? So we'll see, it comes up a few verses from now, but he drew the lots on the 14th of Nisan. So just for to remind us of our Jewish months, so if we, Nisan is when Pesach is, Passover. Maybe for Pesach. Adar is when Purim is, so that's all the way around the calendar, right? So you have Nisan as the first month in one way of counting, so when pa- Passover is, Adar is the last month. So Haman explains the Malbim really wanted to get this done as fast as he could. He wanted to just get rid of the Jews. So it was the 14th of Nisan and he, he drew lots. And the way he drew the lots was, am I going to annihilate them on the 15th? He drew his lots. The answer was no. The 16th, the 17th, the 18th, the 19th. No, 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 no. Finally, he got back to the first. Second, third, fourth, finally, the last day it could come out on was the 13th. So that's how he got to the 13th. So he was going to annihilate them on the 13th of the following month. But then he said, you know, actually, I got to check the signs for the month also. So then he decided after that, that's what it means from day to day. He did day to day. And then he said, actually, I'm going to check the months. So then he did month to month. He did. He started with the, with, uh, with, I guess, Nissan. Um, and then he, was it going to be Nissan? ER, Sivan, he did all the months. And again, no, 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 no. All the lots came out. And finally, the, the, the lot landed on the 13th of Adar, which is basically the last, the latest that it could have possibly come out. And I guess it could have come out the 13th of Nissan. But the Malvin points out that God was giving the Jewish people basically as long as possible before this day of annihilation. And he says, says the Malbim, Haman probably should have gotten the idea that uh, maybe there was something that, uh, you know, was amiss here with his lots. If it keeps coming out on the, you know, the very furthest point in time, but he didn't get that message. 
Um, but if, but this it is part of the miracle that they were given that time to prepare themselves for that day. Okay, thank you so much, and we will pick up next time. Thank you, everybody.